Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And the topic for this week's episode actually comes from a listener who emailed me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. It comes from Jonathan Littlemore, and he says, Dear Ken, I'm a listener from over in the UK and would love if you could do an episode on the podcast discussing the different types of comedy writing. Here in the UK, our sitcoms tend to be written by one person and not in the group room style used in the States. Was there ever a time in America when scripts were just written by one person or have they always been done by a group? Thank you, Jonathan. And so, yeah, let's talk about that. One of the reasons why in the UK that you would have single writers writing all of the episodes is because they only did eight to 10 episodes a year. So you didn't have 39 or 26 or 24 episodes a season to write by yourself. It can be done, but let me tell you, it is very difficult. So, okay, Let's talk a little bit about the history of comedy writing for sitcoms and sort of the dynamics of how the rooms basically worked. And really, to start, you have to go back before television because sitcoms actually began in radio. And generally, those had rather small staffs of maybe four or five people. They did 39 episodes a year, but there was very little rehearsal time and very little rewriting. I mean, the cast would come in either that day or the day before, and they would pick up the scripts, and they would run through it a few times, and that's it. They never had to memorize. They just read the scripts live, and that was the show. It's a lot different in television when you have the blocking and you have the lighting and everyone has to memorize their scripts. Uh, It's very, very different. But back in those days... Oftentimes, the stars of the show would write the episodes. There was a show called The Goldbergs, not the Goldbergs that you now know on ABC, but prior to that, there was a show back in the 40s called The Goldbergs, and it transferred to television, and it starred Gertrude Berg. 
and she wrote over a thousand scripts. She pretty much wrote the entire series. And there is a great photo of her somewhere where you see all of the scripts stacked real high. And she was short, like about five feet. And the scripts just tower over her. Another example, uh, a show you may have heard of, although you haven't seen it in a long time, Amos and Andy. Well, Amos and Andy began on the radio, and two gentlemen, Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell, wrote that show and also starred as Amos and Andy and a lot of the characters. Uh, You couldn't do that today because uh, those characters were African-American, and they, of course, were white. That show, by the way, the radio version of that show, you think of the radio era ending like in 1950. No, that show stayed on the air until like 1960. Again, writing staffs tended to be like four or five people, and it was kind of hard to break into existing hits because there were so few writers, and they kept their jobs. Jack Benny pretty much kept the same writers for decades. And the thing is, back then, writers did not make a ton of money, but they made a comfortable living. But those were in the days when that was pretty much the best you could ask for. You know, if you had a good job and being a comedy writer on a hit show like Jack Benny was a good job. Uh, Also, there were a lot of variety shows back then, and variety shows would do sketches and generally had a troupe of four or five comic actors who would be in all of the sketches. Later, the Carol Burnett show on TV pretty much did the same kind of thing, but the stars of the show would play various characters and sometimes those characters would catch on and those sketches would go on to become lengthy 20-minute pieces or half-hour pieces. An example of that would be The Honeymooners, which was basically a sketch that started from the old Jackie Gleason variety show and it really caught on with listeners. I guess it's sort of the same way that Saturday Night Live had uh, like the Coneheads that became an entire movie. So writers from variety shows and sitcoms really crossed over a lot more back in those days. Now you get to the 1950s, the early days of television, and a lot of the radio shows transferred to TV, which is why I went back to radio. Like I Love Lucy started out as a radio show. The Goldbergs, as I mentioned, Burns and Allen, Amos and Andy, our Miss Brooks. Back in those days, they did 39 episodes a year, and they started out very simply, sometimes with one or two writers writing the entire show. And like in radio, in the early days of sitcoms, they were generally performed live. They would do it at 8 o'clock at night on the East Coast, and then they would do it three hours later for the West Coast. But you talk about pressure. Every week you had to crank out another show. And there's an example, and I've talked about this in the past on the blog and in various places, where there was a sitcom 
that did 39 episodes every year and a writing team wrote the whole show. And after a couple of years of this, one of the members of the writer's team just was fried. They did this in New York. He moved out to California. And this is a true story. Literally, he spent a year sitting in his backyard staring at a tree. So you want to talk about burnout (laughs) 1950s style. And still some shows had a singular voice. There was a show called Armrest Brooks, and a gentleman by the name of Al Lewis wrote that. One of my all-time favorite writers is a gentleman named Nat Hyken. And he died way too young, but he was the creative voice behind Bilko, behind the Phil Silver Show from the late 50s. If you have not seen the Phil Silver Show, treat yourself, find it. Go on Cozy TV or Netflix or wherever it happens to be playing. Buy the DVDs. It is one of the funniest all-time shows. Nat Hyken was the really creative genius behind the Sergeant Bilko show. But even after a couple of years, and he was also directing those shows, he needed help. And so they added a few writers, and one of the writers that they hired who wrote a lot of the episodes in the later seasons of the show was Neil Simon. And what does it tell you about the state of sitcom writing when he felt he was slumming it? I mean, here he is on a show winning Emmys that's probably seen by 30 million people a week, and yet he wanted to write for the theater because that's where status and money was. Mentioned the Honeymooners. Well, they had three teams taken from Gleason's Variety Show. Lucy had five writers, Jess Oppenheimer, Madeline Pugh, and Bob Carroll Jr. They were a team, and the team of Bob Schiller and Bob Weisskopf. And all of those iconic I Love Lucy episodes that are still running today. Five writers in total pretty much wrote every single word. Shows began filming single camera in the 50s. They got out of the habit of doing the uh, live shows and the multi-camera format, filming the show on film with four cameras simultaneously and then editing them together That was actually invented by Desi Arnaz, who was the executive producer. In fact, it was his company, Desi Liu, that produced I Love Lucy, and it was his idea. And as a result of that, all of the episodes of I Love Lucy are available. They're on film. A lot of these other shows that were done live, well, maybe there was a kinescope version that didn't look very good, but you're never going to see them anymore because most of them were not preserved. They did them live and that was it. So once shows began filming single camera, which is like they do in a movie, now all of a sudden you had more time for rewriting And again, it became harder and harder for any one person to write a show. Now we move to the 60s, and that era brought us the Dick Van Dyke Show. Carl Reiner created the show. 
He wrote 13 episodes of it, even before it started filming. And he wrote practically all of the shows the first few years. And again, remember, 39 episodes. That was multi-camera, which meant there were daily run-throughs, there were constant rewrites, and yet one man was the creative force of the Dick Van Dyke Show. Eventually, he would enlist the help of a couple of teams, Bill Persky and Sam Denoff, who wound up going on staff and eventually became the showrunners, the final season of the Dick Van Dyke Show, and a team of Gary Marshall and Jerry Belson. Gary Marshall, you probably have heard of. He went on to later direct a lot of movies like Pretty Woman, but... He had a whole stable of shows on ABC in the 70s. We'll get to him a little bit later. But shows like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, all of those were Gary Marshall shows. So to help out the burden on these small staffs, practically all of the shows would hire freelance writers. Now, back in those days, you could make a pretty nice living just bouncing from show to show. There's a writing team, Jim Fritzell and Everett Greenbaum, and I went on their IMDb page, and it lists them having writing credits on 37 shows. And you know IMDb. It's probably another six or seven that are omitted. And within those 37 shows, 29 episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, 24 episodes of M.A.S.H., the Real McCoy, Love Boat, they they did a thousand episodes and they basically were freelancers. Now, a big sea change in the 60s was residuals. And those were only obtained after a long, very bitter Writers Guild strike. But this improved the writers' incomes by quite a bit. I mean, back in those days, you could freelance eight or ten episodes of different shows. You could do an F Troop and then uh, an Ensign Pulver and uh, McHale's Navy and then a Bewitched and that girl. And you could make a comfortable living. Again, no one was getting rich off being a comedy writer. But, hey, it's a whole lot better than digging a ditch. So that continued into the 70s with the rise of multi-camera shows. In the early 70s, multi-camera shows became the rage. And really, the only single-camera show that remained during that decade, of any import certainly, was MASH. And everything else was multi-camera. And you pretty much had three different camps. You had the Norman Lear camp, and those were done on tape, multi-camera on tape, and he had the All in the Family, Jefferson's, Maud, One Day at a Time, the shows that were more socially relevant. Then you had the MTM School. Those were multi-camera on film, and those were really more character-driven. You had the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bob Newhart Show, Rhoda, Phyllis... Tony Randall's show, those were all MTM shows. And then you had the Gary Marshall stable. He was over at ABC, and like I said, he had shows like The Odd Couple and Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy. So you pretty much worked for one of those three camps 
unless you did MASH. And MASH is another example of a single writer who pretty much wrote the entire show, and that was Larry Gelbart. It was Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds. Gene Reynolds was the co-executive producer with Larry. And Gene is great on story and is a great director and is a great showrunner, but Larry was the Mozart of comedy and pretty much would write the entire season. Larry Gelbart would sit down Sunday night at midnight with a legal pad and write an episode and be done at 7 o'clock in the morning. They would send it out to be typed and it would go to the stage at 9 o'clock that morning. (laughs) You talk about pressure. And look at those shows. He was on the show for the first four years and those are brilliant seasons far and away the best years of MASH, and I say that having been on four other years of MASH. But the MTM stable had maybe a staff of four or five, same thing with any show for Norman Lear, and freelancers would pick up the slack and do most of the episodes. Okay, so now we're in the era where David Isaacs and I broke in. We're now in the mid-70s, okay? Well, back in those days, the way you broke in is that you wrote spec scripts of existing shows. Not like today where you write pilots. They don't want you to have a unique voice. They sure didn't in the 1970s. They wanted to know, could you write in their voice? Could you write their shows? So if a show liked your spec script, they would invite you to come in and pitch. And there were so many writers that would come in, so many freelancers that would come in on a show that when we pitched the Jeffersons, which was the first show that we actually pitched, they had a rule where you could only pitch three ideas because there were seven other freelance writers sitting in the lobby coming in after you and they were going to pitch their ideas as well. We pitched The Jeffersons, we pitched All in the Family, Maud. In the case of Maud, we came in with like five or six pitches. And the story editor, Charlie Houck, liked usually one of our five pitches and would send it on to the producer. And then the producer nixed it. And then they would invite us back to pitch more. We ended up pitching something like 50 to 60 Maud ideas never got a mod assignment. We pitched Barney Miller, and we had some success there. We uh, pitched When Things Were Rotten. How about that? Uh, Laverne and Shirley, Joe and Sons. We got to do two episodes of Joe and Sons. Uh, We couldn't get into the MTM shows, which is really where we wanted to be. We couldn't get into Welcome Back, Cotter, or Sanford and Sons, but we did get into M.A.S.H., And when we got our first MASH assignment, that script became kind of our golden ticket. And through that, we finally got into MTM. We got an assignment on the Tony Randall show, and that led to our first staff job. So finally, we we made it. We're on staff. We were baby writers of the Tony Randall show. And back then, they didn't even give us a credit But we were just so thrilled to have a staff job and be on the lot. Next year, 
we were offered a job on MASH, and we were not idiots. We we took it. By then, Larry Gelbart was gone, as I mentioned, and the staff was just me and David and one other gentleman. Now, he left in October. We also added Ronnie Graham. But when that gentleman left, suddenly we moved up, and David and I were the head writers. And pretty much the last third of season six of MASH was written by me and David. And then the next year, David and I stayed on as the head writers. We added one story editor, Larry Balmasia, in addition to Ronnie Graham. But with the exception of a few scripts that Alan wrote, David and I pretty much wrote the entire season. We had a lot of freelance writers come in, and we did a lot of rewriting on their scripts. We also wrote, I think, eight or nine episodes ourselves. So it can be done. We did it. We pretty much wrote 25 episodes of television. And if I had a tree in the backyard, I think I would have spent the next year staring at it. We kind of phased that out and moved into development as a result of that year. And we came back a little bit, season eight, and our final episodes were Goodbye Radar, his final episode as well. In the 80s, we joined Cheers back in 1982. And still, it was freelancers shouldering most of the script assignments. When we started on Cheers, here was the writing staff, me and David and Glenn and Les Charles. That was it. One night a week, David Lloyd came in to help us rewrite. And one day a week, Jerry Belson came in to help us rewrite. But otherwise, that was it. It was just the four of us doing all of the writing and the rewriting. And along the way, we discovered some pretty good freelance writers, namely David Angel and Heidi Perlman that first season. Now, the problem with freelancers is that their styles vary and their quality varies. So when you find one who's really good, you tended to give them more episodes, number one, and number two, eventually find room in the budget to put them on staff and take them off of the market. So as a result of that, starting in the 80s, writing staffs got larger and freelance assignments became more and more scarce. And it got to the point where in the Writers Guild contract, shows were required to hire one or two freelancers. But even then, We all got around that by giving those assignments to writer's assistants. So it was very, very difficult. And here's something you need to remember. Back then, networks could not own their own shows. They had to rely on studios to produce them. So the studios were vying against each other for shows on the schedule, and that led to a huge competition. And there was a bidding war for really good writers. And just as I mentioned that shows would try to lock up good freelance writers, well, studios would try to lock up good showrunners. And so they made big developmental deals. And when I say big, I mean multi-million dollar deals. You could get a deal 
for $7 million three years, and your only responsibility was coming up with pilots for that particular studio. You were exclusive to that studio, but you got a nice office, and you basically spent six months walking around thinking of ideas and trying to sell a show. And the idea behind it was if you did sell a show and let's say that show was Friends and it became a mega hit, a huge bonanza, well, one Friends franchise could carry a studio for 10 years. So even though there were a lot of these development deals that didn't work out, studios were still willing to take that gamble because in success, a show like Cheers or Frasier or Everybody Loves Raymond or Seinfeld or Friends was an absolute cash cow that is still paying off today. So there were development deals that were taking showrunners off the market and it was getting harder and harder to have really good writers at the top of your shows. So again, you would hire more and more staff writers. And it became a feeding frenzy for young staff writers. Again, since there were no longer freelance assignments, at least when you had freelance assignment, the writer could prove himself. Okay, we wrote an episode of MASH. They liked it. They hired us. Well, at this point, they were hiring baby writers based strictly on spec scripts. Because if they didn't hire this guy, then some other show was going to hire him. So as a result, it became much more of a crapshoot when you hired young writers. And there are a number of writers who maybe lasted a year or two or on staff of one show and then on staff of another, but basically got weeded out because even though they happened to write a very good spec script, they just didn't have the chops to really make it in the industry. Things changed in the 90s, and the big C change was the fact that networks all of a sudden could own their own shows. So there was less need for development deals, okay, because CBS was going to basically put on all of the shows from their studio. Same with NBC, same with ABC. So why would Warner Brothers want to spend $7 million on writers when they probably are not going to get a show on the schedule anyway. So all of those big money deals, boy, those just kind of went away. And things got worse in terms of development deals when there was the last Writers Guild strike. Well, then the studios and the networks saw that as an opportunity to terminate the deals. And they did. And the few writers who still have development deals now can't just sit in an office and work on pilot ideas. If, in fact, they don't have a pilot going, generally they get assigned to work on staff of one of their shows. So they're getting their money's worth. Again, you're not just sitting in an office for three years making $7.2 million. I miss those days. I really, really do. So that meant that there were more writers out there and available. 
the networks and the production companies suddenly had the upper hand. You know, they could hardball. They could hire writers for less than they were making before because, hey, where else are you going to go? And I mean, literally, an agent would say, this is the deal and you have until 4 o'clock to accept it or we're going to move on and hire somebody else. There was no negotiating. It was a a really tough time for writers. And here's uh, an insidious practice that some network studios, production companies are now doing. They will put two baby writers together and call them a team. And so you pay the team as you would one entity. So what that means is you are basically getting two writers for the price of one. Sure, the two young writers are getting screwed, but what choice do they have? Okay, do you want to be on staff of a show or not? This is the only way that you can break in. There's not an awful lot that the Writers Guild can do about it. And the thing that really pisses me off, and I could do a whole podcast just on this, is the fact that it's not necessarily the studios or the networks trying to screw these young writers. I mean, you expect them to. It's writers screwing other writers. It's showrunners condoning this practice, allowing it to happen. That's what really pisses me off. So now we're in the modern era, and listener Jonathan Littlemore asked about group writing, and that has become more and more prevalent. You see all of the Chuck Lorre shows, they're all group-written, or as we like to say, they're all gang-banged. In those shows, the entire staff sits around and writes a script. Nobody goes off and writes a first draft on a Chuck Lorre show. So credits are just rotated around. The credits mean absolutely nothing. But Chuck Lorre feels that that is a more efficient way of working. And, hey, (laughs) you sure can't knock success. So that is how gangbanging has come to be. And there are some shows that believe in it, and there are still other shows that prefer having each writer go off and do their own script. Now you have so many more shows. You have so many more platforms. Well, that's the good news. There's more work for writers. The bad news is a lot of them don't pay very well. How much money does YouTube Red have to hire writing staffs? So writing staffs are small again, but now there are eight shows And now there are orders of 10 shows. There's not 24 episodes like in broadcast TV. So you can write on a show and be done in four or five months. And then you're out looking for work again. Okay, there is the overview. But the only constant through all of this is that Hollywood needs product. Whether it's radio, TV, the internet, holograms, your phone, whatever, they need content. They need shows, and that means they need you, and that means writers will never become obsolete. All right. That is going to do it for this week. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler and to Howard Hoffman. 
Now, just like Jonathan, you can get a hold of me and you can suggest topics for the podcast or anything else you want to say. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'll say it slowly, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. That's an overview. Uh, There will be a test on Thursday, so I hope you took notes. If not, go back and listen to it again three or four times. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.